Hi, everyone, and welcome to Season 5 of The Heart Podcast. We hope you had a restful winter holiday and are ready to join us in further exploration and learning about anti-racist teaching in higher education. In this new year and new season, we'll be focusing on the vision and framework of Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation, or TRHT, which is a comprehensive national and community-based process to bring about transformational and sustainable change. We're particularly excited to welcome back our fearless leader, Dr. Milagros Castillo-Montoya, who was on sabbatical last year and looks forward to sharing innovative knowledge through conversations with leaders from across the country. This season will be extra special given that we will be joined by my friend and colleague from Yukon, Truth Hunter. Truth, it's an honor to have you join us as co-host this season, and I'm grateful for the insights you'll be sharing with us. Passing the mic over to you to share more about yourself with our audience. Thank you, Omar, for such a warm welcome. Just to share a little bit about myself, I am a doctoral student in educational leadership. My research examines decolonial embodied teaching and learning through West African dance. Previously, I participated in the Heart Podcast as a guest and co-host. Now, I am excited to be on this team for the season. Overall, I am deeply invested in collaboratively creating content that inspires educators to think about how to transform their desire for anti-racist teaching into actionable steps forward. Hi everyone, I'm really excited to be back and I look forward to the great conversations that we're going to be having this semester. For today's session, we're focusing on learning more about the truth, racial healing and transformation approach that the W.K. Kellogg Foundation has been leading since 2016. The University of Connecticut is now part of the network and community that is doing this work. One of the things we want to explore this season of the podcast is what it means to be doing this work of truth, racial healing, and transformation, and what's the impact that it can have on anti-racist teaching in higher education. Joining us for this conversation today is Dr. Frank Tuitt. He is the University of Connecticut's Vice President and Chief Diversity Officer as well as a professor of higher education and student affairs in the NEAC School of Education. With well over 25 years of experience as an administrator, a scholar, and a change agent in higher education, Dr. Tewitt is responsible for system-wide strategic planning and implementation of mission-driven institutional diversity efforts. These responsibilities include overseeing the Office for Diversity and Inclusion and its six cultural centers and programs. Dr. Tuwi's scholarship critically examines issues of race, inclusive excellence, and diversity in and outside of the classroom. He is leading the effort here at the University of Connecticut, along with the Provost's Office, to implement the Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation Framework in order to support efforts in making the university a more racially equitable and just institution. Also joining us is Dr. Lynn Pascarella, who was appointed president of the American Association of Colleges and Universities in 2016 after serving as the 18th president of Mount Holyoke College. She has held positions as provost at the University of Hartford and vice provost for academic affairs and dean of the graduate school at the University of Rhode Island, where she taught for more than two decades. A philosopher whose work has combined teaching and scholarship with local and global engagement, Dr. Pascarella has written extensively on medical ethics, metaphysics, public policy, and the philosophy of law. Her most recent book, What We Value, 
Public Health, Social Justice, and Educating for Democracy examines the role of higher education in addressing some of the most pressing contemporary issues at the intersection of ethics, law, and public policy. Thank you all so much for being here and for sharing your wisdom with us. Let's get started. We would like to begin by acknowledging that the land on which we gather is the territory of the Mohegan, Mashantucket Pequot, Eastern Pequot, Scaticoke, Golden Hill Pawgusset, Nipmuc, and Lenape peoples, who have stewarded this land throughout the generations. Welcome, Dr. Tuit and Dr. Pascarella, to the Heart Podcast. We are excited to have this conversation with you today because you're both exceptional leaders in the work of racial equity in higher education. And now you're in partnership together to bring the Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation Initiative to the University of Connecticut. So, based on this new initiative, for UConn, we would love to just take this time and to get to know you and know more about your work on the truth, racial healing and transformation process. So let's get started. I'm excited. So Lynn, can you share with us a broad explanation um, for our audience on what the truth, racial healing and transformation process is? What are the central pillars? And what is the vision for this work to create transformation specifically in higher education? Thank you so much for the opportunity to join you. Uh, TRHT was launched in 2016 under the leadership of Gail Christopher, who at the time was a senior vice president for the WK Kellogg Foundation. And, and she was an architect of this vision to create a comprehensive national and community-based process to bring about sustainable change to address the historical and contemporary effects of racism. The goal overall is to jettison a belief in a hierarchy of human value. So TRHT campus centers are aimed at preparing the next generation of strategic thinkers and leaders to break down racial barriers and to dismantle the belief in a hierarchy of human value. The work is grounded in the belief of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all human beings. There are three five components of the work. Um, the goal is to focus on narrative change, racial healing, separation law, and economy. We begin with uh, truth telling because the dominant narrative has been one in which the truth has been distorted. Uh, in some cases intentionally by the exclusion of voices of those who've been consigned to the lower shelves of history. And so we need to be able to begin to identify the ways in which our own institutional policies, practices, and cultures promote those false narratives. That narrative change is a precursor to racial healing and relationship building, which often involves racial healing circles in which people from different backgrounds come together and share the experiences that have shaped their identities. Separation law and economy are the main channels by which this hierarchy of human value is, is reproduced. And so different institutions have focused on uh, different structures and systems for dismantling these categories within their work. 
that's really helpful to get a big understanding and a broader understanding of what this initiative is, what are its essential pillars and how it got started. Thank you so much, Lynn, for, for sharing that, especially for any of our audience members who may not have heard of this initiative before. So one of the reasons why we're interested in deeply learning more about this initiative is that Frank, through some of your work in your office and in partnership with the provost office, there is now this effort to bring the Truth and Racial Healing and Transformation Initiative to UConn. And so I wondered if you could speak a bit to your vision for bringing this framework to UConn and what you hope um, will be an outcome of bring, bringing this initiative to the university. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. Uh, excited to join my colleague, Lynn in this partnership and uh, TRHT is something that I've had my eye on for a while. And as I made the transition to UConn, uh, I, you know, one of the things that I became concerned with is how we've been operationalizing our DEI efforts in higher ed. And TRHT provided an opportunity to really center a commitment to racial justice in our diversity, equity, and inclusion work. And so uh, when the opportunity came along to apply to, uh, you know, potentially host a campus center, uh, we jumped on it, particularly in the context here in the state of Connecticut, where, you know, uh, in recent times, the Connecticut uh, has determined uh, racism as a public health crisis. And as you know, earlier in 2022, University of Connecticut also joined the state in that declaration of racism as a public health crisis. And TRHT provided an opportunity for us to have a framework for how we might approach addressing racism as a public health crisis here at, at the institution. But eventually in terms of our work that all of our centers and institutes and faculty engage in, in terms of supporting efforts across the state. So that was the, the vision. How can we use the framework of TRHT to support our efforts to address racism as a public health crisis? In terms of specific outcomes, and we've been thinking a little bit about that, TRHT has an opportunity to help us really uh, center our efforts to facilitate a sense of belonging for historically excluded and racially oppressed communities, both here on campus and, and throughout the state. It provides an opportunity for us to really take a look at what are some of the persistent and ongoing racial equity gaps that we've been trying to address for, for some time and really focus our efforts in those areas. It provides an opportunity for us to, as I mentioned earlier, better integrate our DEIJ efforts with our anti-racism work. You know, one of the things I've become concerned of is uh, the momentum that we developed coming off of, of George Floyd's murder has kind of waned a little bit. And so really thinking about ways to systematically uh, embed our efforts to continue to address uh, racism, uh, both on campus and throughout the state was, was a priority. So we wanted to do that. And then I think overall, really just building a healthier community. Uh, one of the things we've been talking about in our Office for Diversity and Inclusion is how we can really support our efforts to foster more inclusive, affirming, welcoming institutional environment that allows all of our community members, regardless of where they come from, to be able to have an opportunity to achieve at the highest levels and to feel that they're a part of an organization that's committed to supporting 
and, and nurturing their humanity. So that's that's been a big part of our goal. And we see TRHT as an opportunity to really organize our efforts in a way that allow us to achieve those goals. Thank you, Frank, for sharing that. And to just explain to us how a lot of the initiatives that were already happening at UConn align with this work. And I really appreciate the way that you frame this as racism as a public health crisis and how this work provides a framework to begin to do a lot of the work that started on the heels of George Floyd. Um, but we're seeing like momentum is being lost and how we can pick up that work and have a framework to continue moving that forward. So thank you for laying that out for us. So Lynn, um, Right now, we would like to know if you have experience seeing how different institutions apply this framework to guide transformational and sustainable racial equity change. And can you give us some examples of the unique approaches that different institutions have taken to put in practice TRHT? There are so many good examples. We started with 10 initial campus centers. Now we're close to 75. But the ones that I'll mention focus on different pillars that I mentioned. And one of the most significant strengths of the program is the fact that the work is grounded in the specific needs of the communities. Rutgers Newark is focused on addressing the economic challenges and social disparities in the city of Newark. So they've been sponsoring a program called Healing Sounds which includes spoken word and musical events that support local artists while confronting urgent issues like the water crisis in Newark. They also did something which I think is, is so important, and they decided to place their campus center for truth, racial healing and transformation, not on their campus, but in a public library in the children's section so that children and their family members can come in and see the work of the university to have it be visible in their lives and, and to get involved. They have an honors living learning community that focuses on preparing students to be citizens with agency in their communities. And so it ends traditional notions of what it means to be academically excellent, shifting them away from uh, measures that have privileged white students and and says maybe there are different ways to view excellence ways that go beyond how you perform on standardized tests but how you give back to the communities from which you've benefited so they engage in racial healing circles throughout their communities the alamos college district in uh, texas has focused on native american communities with two signature projects they've got a first people's project to gather oral histories and historiography around indigenous people in the region. And they have a in solidarity speaker series that um, and both of these programs contribute to a fuller, more inclusive narrative of the American story and the challenges that we have before us. Spelman College has work centering on reforming criminal justice and engaging with incarcerated individuals through a book club program at the Whitworth Women's Facility and through partnerships with Gideon's Promise to provide broader public defense in support of pretrial defendants and, and those who are incarcerated who don't have uh, defense available to them. And, and we're thrilled that UConn is joining us with a, an emphasis on public health. When Gail Christopher started this initiative, 
it was around her desire of our racial healing, focusing on the ways in which racism is a profound public health issue. Uh, we saw throughout COVID-19, we continue to see the disparately negative impact of the virus on communities of color with Black, Latinx, Indigenous populations dying at five times the, the number of whites. And we've seen in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder, the murder of Breonna Taylor, Maude Arbery, and so many others, the real physical health impacts of racism on individuals. And so this is an urgent need for us to address and, and uh, so happy that UConn will be leading the way in this regard. Thank you, Lynn. It's really helpful to hear about examples where institutions are taking up this framework, applying it to their local context and, mm -hmm. and community needs and amplifying the need to center racial equity in other efforts to do equity work on campus and connected to the communities that are close to campus and that students reside in. So I really appreciate those examples. Now, one of the things that is really clear in doing um, diversity, equity, and inclusion work is that when race is centered, there tends to be a resistance to, the, to that centering and even to that work. And I'm wondering if each of you can actually speak in turn from your own experiences leading organizational change about how you work through the challenge of that resistance when it does show up so that transformational change is still possible. Frank, would you be willing to kick us off on that? Sure, uh, this is a, a great question and one that I am constantly thinking about. Just this morning, I received an email with some data from a survey and, and the person shared a particular quote that spoke to one of our community members, uh, sort of irritation with the extent to which we have been pushing uh, a focus on anti-racism work. And, and so, you know, there are always gonna be non-believers that we have to engage and navigate around this work. One of the strategies I'm relying on uh, more and more is using data to counter their perceptions that we don't need to, to focus on uh, anti-racism work, that somehow we've magically moved into a post-racial context. The data is a good way of reminding folks that inequities continue to exist and in, in some cases are, are even getting greater. Uh, so. That's sort of on a on an individual level, but I think more structurally, we're always concerned with the capacity of large organizations to be able to hold attention and focus and momentum on the work that we're trying to do, making sure that the resources, the knowledge, the awareness, the overall abilities to put into action some of the things that we're trying to do are uh, integrated throughout the organization uh, and not isolated in one office or in, in the hands of a couple of individuals. Uh, so building capacity uh, across the institution to deliver on, on the goals we have uh, can be a challenge uh, that, that we, we uh, have to navigate. 
Uh, and then I think I'm really, you know, what I love about TRHT's framework is, is the truth-telling part of it. And how do you provide space for individuals to tell their truths without uh, countering, uh, you know, pushback or resistance or, or retaliation? We have a, a, a panel uh, next week. Uh, for the National Day of Racial Healing on common narratives uh, um, related to race and racism. And we have some brave individuals who have agreed to share their common narratives. And, and I'm always concerned that, you know, engaging in that type of truth telling ha has consequences for the folks who come forward. So, you know, those are just some of the challenges that we continue to navigate. Um, but again, I think you know, we continue to disrupt the narrative that we've moved beyond the focus on race by showing real tangible evidence of the continued inequities that exist and use that as a basis for continuing to move this work forward. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more, Frank. What we're seeing is that faculty, students, staff are exhausted as a result of COVID, as a result of the racism, sexism, homophobia, ableism, all of the discrimination that's taking place, economic disparities. I, I think the biggest challenge facing higher education today in the U.S. is the growing economic and racial segregation, and we have to address that. And for far too long, we have relegated the work of diversity to diversity offices, which, you know, if, if they're lucky, have one full-time person. Instead, we need to see the work of anti-racism as everyone's responsibility in the community. Adopt Daryl Smith's model where she talks about diversity and inclusion work as in the same way that you would about IT. You wouldn't say one person or one office is responsible for IT. It's the entire community that relies on this in the same way that the entire community relies on the work of anti-racism. So it's, it's freeing people up to engage in this work, recognizing how difficult it is to do the work and rewarding that in promotion and tenure processes, in support for staff around professional development in the curriculum itself. So I, you know, I think about Valerie Ashby, who's the Dean of Arts and Sciences at Duke, uh, when she was announcing the launch of their center said, we haven't done this before. We're not talking about the usual and what we're calling for is a sustained consciousness shift. And, and so she said, vulnerability is our superpower. And we have to recognize that. And, and it's not going to be easy. Transformation doesn't take place overnight. One of our campus centers that's done extraordinary work is uh, Hamlin University, two miles down the road from where Philando Castile was killed by police. And so they've been doing work around community policing. And yet over the past week, they've had a high profile case in which a student objected to the depiction of Muhammad in a, a, a class. And despite the fact that the teacher warned students in the syllabus and uh, verbally, there were concerns that this was an anti-Islamic act. And, and so we need to engage in ongoing conversations about the kinds of challenges that are likely to arise when we have increasingly diverse communities and do some preemptive decision-making and healing so that we create a community of trust uh, in which these cases don't turn into crises, but as a, a form for further discussion about where we need to go in a shared community. 
Thank you both, Frank and Lynn. I really appreciate first, Frank, how you framed it as this work sort of disrupting this narrative that we've gone beyond race, right? And actually using narratives and storytelling in order to counter that particular myth around us being beyond race. And Lynn, thank you for also laying out how this is sustained work, it's systemic work, and it's sustained conscious shift. We're really interested in considering how racial equity can be promising for changing the learning environment in higher education. What would each of you say is one promising impact that the TRHT process can have specifically for higher education, teaching and learning? And if we can begin with you, Frank. Yeah, so this is also an area I spend a lot of time uh, thinking about. Um, you know, there are a couple of components of the framework in particular that are really, I think, something we've been preaching. The, the truth-telling part of the learning environment that allows for individuals, uh, whether that's faculty or students, to be able to fully enter the learning environment and really talk about their lived experiences in ways that contribute to the knowledge production within the classroom, right? So being able to do that from a perspective, my colleague Bianca Williams talks a lot about radical honesty and the ways in which faculty members can engage in truth telling about uh, their own lived experiences in the academy as a way of modeling for their students how they might begin to do that work, right? So really getting our faculty familiar with and comfortable with the sort of learning power of being able to, to utilize and leverage narratives. So that, that's one aspect of it. I think another aspect is really providing uh, faculty with tools around how they can make sure that they're centering aspects of, of, of uh, knowledge that supports a greater racial awareness in the work that they're doing in the teaching and learning environment. And that includes really taking a hard look at the kinds of content they're choosing to feature in the in, the, in their courses, really taking a look at the types of examples they're using in their classrooms. So that's at, at one end. I'll, I'll offer the other end though. When we think about racial equity outcomes in terms of learning outcomes at our own institution, we're seeing some widening gaps in terms of, you know, rates related to uh, subject to dismissal, students who are ending up on academic probation, and these are contributing to increased disparities along the graduation and retention rates, right, uh, that, that, that cut across racial groups, where, you know, our black and brown students in particular are, are seeing some challenges there. Historically, we have tended to uh, place the responsibility for those outcomes on the students. And TRHT helps us move the needle to say, this is an institutional responsibility, and this is a department responsibility, and this is an instructor responsibility. And at all of those levels, we need to start paying attention to the data in terms of what kinds of outcomes we're seeing and begin to think about innovative, creative, inclusive, equitable ways to respond to that data. So from the front end in terms of how we show up in the classrooms to 
the kinds of outcomes we're seeing. There are numerous opportunities to center this work uh, in, in specifically in the teaching and learning arena as it relates to uh, anti-racism work. Yeah, I'm so glad you raised those issues, Frank. That at AACNU, we're developing a, a toolkit for campuses to use to do a kind of equity audit. It, because even before students arrive on campus, this uh, work can lead to changes in admission, financial aid, disciplinary and regulatory practices uh, that Frank mentioned. And, and when it comes to teaching and learning, engaging a diverse group of participants in the process of creating and promoting authentic narratives to foster the appreciation and interconnectedness and equality of all human beings often leads to the expansion of institutions' curricula, their course syllabi, their library holdings to include more diverse perspectives. But an equity-minded approach to teaching and learning is also one in which colleges and universities are first and foremost positioned as places of welcome and belonging. Um, and where we take into account the real impact of racism, sexism, homophobia, other forms of discrimination. And my colleague, Siever Sheldon uh, at AACNU does work around cognitive bandwidth and the ways in which students' capacities to learn can be diminished through having to worry about food or shelter insecurity or forms of discrimination. And, and so this is a, a responsibility that we have to take into account the ways in which our own policies and practices are reducing the cognitive bandwidth for faculty, students, and staff on our campuses. If we take an equity-minded approach, we also have to disaggregate data with respect to which students are engaging in high-impact practices in the classroom and co-curricular activities, because for too long, um, it's been the privilege to have been engaged in study abroad or have been able to take unpaid internships uh, or do research undergraduate research um, that isn't compensated so we need to to find ways to make sure that these high impact practices are built in the to the curriculum and that everybody can take advantage of them i mentioned earlier that, that we need to reconceive notions of excellence and a truth racial healing and transformation framework moves away from ranking and sorting students based on standardized tests and looks at engaging all students in work that matters to them and to the community. And excellence is measured um, as a process. And um, we look for continuous improvement. And all of this leads to, I hope, a reinforcement of colleges and universities across the country as anchor institutions, demonstrating that their success is inextricably linked to the psychological, social, economic, health, educational well-being of those in the communities in which they're located and those they seek to serve. So developing programs that include community-based learning and service learning um, will be an outcome if, if the TRHT model is, is adopted by campuses. Lynn, something you said uh, reminded me about related to excellence, uh, not only how we think about uh, excellence in terms of student performance, but also in terms of faculty workload and uh, thinking about the, the APT process and, and the other ways in which we recognize and support faculty for their efforts. And, uh, you know, often uh, this work that we're hoping our faculty will engage in 
uh, at least traditionally doesn't align with uh, the indicators that are used to uh, often determine uh, promotion or tenure or, or, or merit pay and these things. And we really have to uh, do a better job in making sure this work aligns with how faculty are being evaluated or assessed. And so we've begun to have some conversations here at the University of Connecticut around this specific topic, and, and we'll see. As you know, promotion and tenure practices are sacred and hard, but we, we have seen some institutions begin to, to tackle this in, in real intentional ways, and hopefully we'll be able to learn from their efforts. Yeah, so Rutgers Newark is an example of an institution that has done that. Um, Worcester Polytechnic Institute, so it's not just uh, liberal arts colleges and universities, but uh, STEM institutions that are are recognizing this this critical work. I'm glad that the two of you landed in this point about the workload on faculty and what it means for them to take this up. Um, as we come to a close, I wonder if from your experience with this framework, or even Frank, as we're thinking about applying this framework at the University of Connecticut, some faculty may not know where to get started. How do you get started? If you're a faculty member, whether you're in a STEM field or in a social science or liberal arts, and you're interested in truth, racial healing, and transformation being a part of your classroom, a part of what students experience when they enter the room with you. What would be one piece of advice that you would give to a faculty member for having this framework come to life in their classroom? Lynn, I'll start with you. What do you what would you say? Well, I would first of all say take advantage of the resources that we have available at the American Association of Colleges and Universities. We have a website that's dedicated to TRHT initiatives, and those resources provide examples of, of syllabi, of course programs, community-based learning activities uh, that, that can be used by faculty, students, and staff. We want to provide opportunities for students to be co-creators in the curriculum, and it's difficult for faculty to relinquish control over the classroom. I know my many years of teaching, but here's where centers for teaching and learning can play an important role in partnering with TRHT centers to say, let's help faculty um, engage in pedagogies that will promote anti-racism, encourage students to speak across differences, and to do the, the work of racial healing as central to a curriculum without taking away from the learning objectives that are necessary in, in specific disciplines. Yeah, the only thing I'll, I'll add to that is I think, uh, well, I'm, I'm not sure, but it, my thought here is it's not accidental that the truth part is first in, in, in the TRHT. And I think my advice to faculty is always to start with understanding their own sort of history and particularly their own racial history uh, as they begin to uh, think about how to engage in this work. Really thinking about the aspects of their lived experiences that shape how they think about uh, not only the teaching and learning process, but race and racism in particular, how different aspects of their identities shape how they show up in the learning environment. And then really 
do think about the, the range of resources that are out there and available to them. My fear often is uh, some faculty members who, you know, maybe new to this work, go out and in a desire to, to contribute, you know, uh, try to implement things that they really haven't done the, the preparation for, and that can have, you know, more uh, negative consequences for the learning environment. So, so really, you know, starting with the self and then taking uh, uh, some time to really do their homework about what resources are available, what can they learn from others who have, have engaged in this work successfully, and begin to craft their own approach to uh, embedding TRHT into the, the way they think about their own course design. I want to mention, just building on this, that this is more challenging for faculty, staff, and students at some institutions and for others because of the unprecedented overreach we've seen into the curriculum on the part of governors, uh, governing boards and state legislators around the banning of discussions of divisive concepts. So if you can't talk about race, racism, homophobia, uh, you can't talk about reproductive rights, then that is going to be a challenge. And, and so some institutions have tried to change the language around the workshops that they're offering, but we need to speak out as a higher education community in defense of academic freedom and allowing this work to flourish on campuses across the country. That's an excellent point. Appreciate you uh, raising it because it presents another challenge, even for faculty who are committed to doing this work. Thank you so much to the both of you for the wisdom that you've shared today based on your experience leading organizational change and transformations that really center racial equity. Lynn, it was really helpful to learn about the pillars of the Truth Racial Hearing and Transformation Initiative and the examples that you gave about institutions that are doing this work is also helpful for our listeners to be able to look up those organizations and learn more from them as an additional resource. We also appreciate you naming the exhaustion that faculty, staff, and students are experiencing in higher education and the injustice of relegating anti-racist work to one office as opposed to sharing that responsibility among everyone in the institution. Because that work is so important, we agree with you um, that it needs to be valued and rewarded and, and uplifted so that organizational transformation is possible. And, and Frank, we really appreciate that you are working to amplify the need to continue racial equity, especially given that the state and the university has identified racism as a public health crisis. We really can't drop the ball, even if it's become um, less um, popular or less in the, in the mind um, stream of the media right now. And so we need to continue to do the work even when it's not as popular to do so because as you said the data still points to the reality that racial inequity is still pervasive and it's the responsibility of the institution department and instructors to pay attention to that data and respond so that the institutional learning environment can change uh, we really appreciate both of you and your endless work to advance racial equity broadly and here at the university of connecticut so thank you so much as always, we're thankful for the support from the Office of Diversity and Inclusion and the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning at the University of Connecticut, because it takes a village and it takes heart.